Good morning, church. Great to, uh, great to see you, great to be with you uh, this morning. I'm, I just want to let you know, in the interest of full disclosure here, I'm like super stressed about preaching today. And uh, why you laugh at that? Why, like, why would someone laugh at that? Did you hear that? A little ripple of laughter. You, you, it's because I got a new Bible. <laughs> and so I'm just like stressed about having a new Bible. It was time, like I, I needed to replace my previous one. And so I got this new Bible, and it's like so, I mean, it's so nice, goat skin leather. It's very soft. It's very pristine. It's very beautiful. And I was just so stressed all week about like the first time you put a mark in your Bible. I was just so stressed about that. It took so long for me to actually get to that place, and I didn't do it until this morning. And uh, so, um, so hopefully I can push through the stress of this moment and get us into God's Word. We are going to be in Acts chapter 9 and um, I want you to think, actually, as we get into God's Word, I want you to think about what just happened up here on the stage with worship and the band uh, that we had leading us. I want you to think about all the parts of the band. I want you to think about uh, the drums, and we had guitars, uh, two guitarists, and we had a keyboardist, and we had uh, vocalists who were up here. And each of those instruments playing a critical part in delivering, making the song. And I want you to have that, that in your mind, the various instruments all contributing to the song. In Acts chapter 9, Ananias, we're introduced to a man named Ananias. He receives a vision that Saul, who we've already met as far back as Acts chapter 6, Ananias receives a vision that Saul, the vicious persecutor of the church, has been saved. And is, in God's own words to Ananias, a chosen instrument of mine. That is to say, like the instruments in the band, Paul is going to play a very important and particular role in the mission of the church. He is God's chosen instrument. And in the account of Saul's conversion, which is what we're going to look at in Acts 9 today, and not just Saul, but also Ananias's part in that, we're going to see what it means to be a chosen instrument of God. Now, we're not going to get called to the same kind of thing that Paul was called to and Saul. We're not going to be called to an apostolic role. But nevertheless, we have a role to play. If you're a Christian, giving your life to Jesus Christ, you have a role to play in the mission that he has laid out for us. And if I can come back to the opening illustration, the melodies and the harmonies, the rhythms and the bass line all need to be there, all need to be part of this gospel mission song that we're singing together. And it won't be there unless each one of us is playing our unique part. And so let's turn our attention to the Scriptures. This is Acts chapter 9. I'm reading from my new Bible. Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through uh, 19, the first part of uh, verse 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. All right, in your uh, notes and up on the screen, you see what we're going after in this message, in this passage. When I am a chosen instrument of God, Several things are going to be true about me. The first is this, I will have a before Christ, after Christ story. Do you have a before Christ, after Christ story? I mean, the passage we just read, it's obvious. Saul gets saved in this passage. We're reading the account of him coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And he had been, he was a devout Jew, but you can't be saved apart from Jesus. And once the Messiah came and presented himself to the Jewish people, every Jewish person had a decision to make. Am I going to receive the promised Messiah and believe that he's the promise of God? Or am I going to reject it? And not only had Saul not made that decision, he was actively and violently pursuing people who made that decision to become followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 1 says, Saul was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. And when the word murder is there, it's literal. I mean, he was seeing to the execution of people who were followers of Christ. He'd seen to Stephen's death. And he talks uh, about his former life in two other recorded testimonies. We have it here in Acts chapter 9, but also in Acts 22 and Acts 26, we have two other occasions where Paul tells his own story and gives even more details about how notorious his life was. He went to the high priest because this was his job. He went to the high priest, verse 2, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, anybody who's at the synagogue, who's uh, Jewish, who's now professing that, the, that Jesus is the Messiah, he wants to find them so that he could bind them and bring them to Jerusalem. 
Now this, what we have here, this is his before Christ story. He was a bad man who sought to crush Christians and crush the church of Jesus Christ. He's a bad man. This is his before Christ story. And every one of us as Christians should have a before Christ story. This is what my life was like before I became a follower of Jesus Christ. And I realize that believers trust Christ in different ways. They come to an understanding of Christ as Savior in different ways. For teens and adults, just by the time you get to your teen years, the sin's pretty obvious, wouldn't you say? How many people your sin was pretty obvious to you in your teen years? How many teenagers in the room are willing to admit that? Don't raise your hands. That's fine. But, but, but for, for sure, and I came to Christ when I was 15, and my sins were obvious to me. But, but if you came to Christ in your adult years, if you had a few more years to develop that, you know for sure that you're a sinner. We, we struggle, we don't struggle as teens and adults to really see our sin, and then it's a little more obvious the before Christ and the after Christ story that we have. The sin is clear, the confession of our sin is obvious, the need of Jesus is expressed. There's an evident before Christ story. But it can look different for children. And we understand that. And when, like our church has been around 20 years, and so we have, we have people who are adults now in our church who were children and harvest kids in the earliest days. And that pattern, of course, is repeating over all of these years. We have lots of people in our church who have come to faith as children in harvest kids in Awana. In fact, um, I, we got a word on Thursday that there was a child who professed faith in Christ at Awana on Wednesday night. Isn't that awesome? Let's celebrate that for a second. Praise God for a, a child uh, receiving the gospel. And so when these kids are, 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 are coming to faith in Christ, and we've baptized these kids over the years, and generally we wait until they're like 11, 12 years old. We want them to have an ability to make that decision on their own. They're coming into an age where that makes more sense, and so we kind of wait for that. But when you're baptizing them around that age, but if they've come to Christ when they were like four, five, or six, well, they don't have much of a before Christ story. You know what I'm saying? They, they didn't have a, a, a really big transformation in choosing to follow Christ. I mean, how much sin can you get into by the time you're four? Now, I know there's probably some parents around who have three-year-olds who are like, I will introduce you to my child and you will know how sinful they are. Well, I raised three of my own, and I'm aware of sinfulness in kids, but they don't have like the big, spectacular, kind of glowing testimony of I fell into this, and Jesus rescued me, and I was able to put all that aside. They don't really have that story because their sin nature didn't have time to develop. But even for that child, I need you to track with me for a moment. Even with that child, there's still a moment when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they say, I don't have that. There's still an acknowledgement, whether they have a fully developed sense of their own sinfulness or not, there's, a, there's at least an understanding, I don't have Jesus. I'm not saved. I need Jesus. I believe. Now I do. However, that's expressed for them. And as childlike as that is, that is a legit before Christ and after Christ story. The greater danger isn't the child. 
that has made this profession and has to wrestle with that and doesn't have like that full kind of before Christ story. That's not the greater danger. The greater danger in a church that's gone on as long as ours has and some that have gone on much longer, the danger is becoming an adult in a church and never actually had that moment. You don't actually have a before Christ story. In fact, you do have a before Christ and it's your entire life. Because somehow you just fell into it and you got into the routine of being the church, but you've never actually given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never repented at the cross. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never experienced the power of the resurrection because you've never come to him. You've fallen instead into cultural Christianity. Or, or, or we could say it this way, you, you've inherited religion. And inherited religion deceives many into thinking that they're saved, when in reality they are not. They're religious, but not redeemed. If you don't have a before and after, that means that there isn't a moment that you can point to when a decision was made. And you have no basis for saying that you're saved. Therefore, and this is the intent of this message, what we're driving at, that we are chosen instruments of God, our heart and desire is to be a chosen instrument of God. But if you don't have the before and after story, you cannot be a chosen instrument of God. Which leads us uh, to this, and see this next in your notes. I must have a personal encounter with Christ. In terms of, uh, you know, that, and that's what we see here for Saul, in terms of, you know, awesome conversion stories. So we've all heard these testimonies. A person who was just like so bad and so sinful, and Jesus met them, and now they're living this holy life for Jesus. They're on mission for him. And you look at that story, you say, that's awesome. But in terms of awesome conversion stories, let's admit up front that Saul wins. Do you think he wins? I mean, this is pretty spectacular. He's on the road. He's headed to do a thing. He's a really bad man. And Jesus just, bam, in a flash of light shows up and he gets saved. That's a pretty spectacular story. I would give runner-up status to the Philippian jailer in chapter 16 because there was like a whole earthquake that brought him to Jesus. So I think that's runner-up status. It's still not as great as Jesus showing up in this flash of light. And so verse 3, as he went on his way, heading down the road to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, in one of those other accounts of his testimony, Paul lets us know that this actually happened at noon, around midday. This is in the desert, at midday, high noon as they call it, the sun beating down on them. And even though the sun was beating down at midday, the glory of God, the light of God, shone in such a way that everybody noticed it. So that's brightness. That's the glory of God manifesting itself. No surprise that the glory of God would outshine the sun. Amen? No surprise by that. Verse 4, having seen this light falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, we can't miss the fact that Jesus says that the persecution that Saul's been carrying out is a persecution of Jesus. It's a persecution of Jesus. We've been studying the book of Acts together. We know that it's Peter and John that got thrown in prison. We know it's Peter and John that got beaten by, uh, by the whips. 
We know that it was Stephen who stood up and preached that message. We know that it was Stephen who felt the wrath of the crowd and the stones against his body. We look at it and we go, it was Peter and John and the other apostles, and it was Stephen that, were fe- that was feeling the persecution. But in fact, Jesus is saying, Saul, you're pre- persecuting me. The persecution is on Jesus himself. And there's no small allusion here to our ecclesiology, what we believe about the church that we are in fact one body, and Christ is the head of this body. And Jesus himself said in Luke 10, 16, he said this, that when one suffers, we all suffer. Isn't that true? When one suffers, we all suffer. And Jesus is taking that in terms of the church, in terms of persecution, and saying, look, when one person is being persecuted, we all feel that. And in fact, the head feels it completely. Jesus feels it. Every single martyr who gives their life, every person who's beaten, every person who's maligned, that's on Jesus. We suffer, we are persecuted for the sake of his name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says to him, verse 5, who are you, Lord? Now, don't Don't think that the Lord here is a reference to Jesus. He doesn't know this is Jesus. That's why he's asking the question. This is more like him using the common way of addressing someone. It's like him saying, who are you, sir? And Jesus responds and says, I'm Jesus. And I want you to let you know that those three words are the first three words I underlined in my new Bible. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And it's hard to imagine in this moment how how crushing and how devastating this would have been to Saul. In a moment, he realizes that everything he had built his life on, everything that he had believed was now proven to be false. As soon as he hears the voice and knows it's God and hears that it's Jesus, everything his life has been about has been crushed. He believed that Jesus was someone for sure, but he was crucified and he was not resurrected and he was going around persecuting everybody who said that he was. And now he finds out he is. Everything he had built his life on had proven to be a lie. And how many of us have that as part of our before Christ story, where when we heard the gospel, we just came to an understanding that everything we had built our life on was proven to be a lie, and that the truth was rooted in Jesus Christ. And in fact, that's the starting point for every true conversion, is that we come to the end of ourselves. In fact, Jesus, when he preached that masterful, most amazing of sermons called the Sermon on the Mount, this is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when he preached this sermon, he introduced it by giving us the Beatitudes, and the first of the Beatitudes is so critical for starting the whole thing. And in the first Beatitude, Jesus said this, this is Matthew 5, 3, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have poverty of spirit. Blessed are those who come to the end of themselves, who are beggarly poor. 
in and of themselves. When you come to the end of yourselves, you inherit the kingdom of heaven, you punch your ticket to heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. We have to lose all the pride. We have to lose all the self-sufficiency. Jesus is all. And that's the stumbling point. If, if, if there are people in the room who are not yet Christians, if there are some watching on the live stream or on demand this week, and you're not yet a Christian, the thing that's holding you back is pride. It's that you still think you have something in you that would commend you to God or that would carry you through this life in a good way. Until that's crushed, until you surrender every shred of pride, all the self-will and self-sufficiency, until that is all given to Jesus, we cannot be saved. We have to come to the end of ourselves. And so the best prayers when we're coming to faith in Jesus, and they sound so childlike, I'm done. I have nothing left. I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus. Have you prayed that prayer? Or a prayer very similar to it? Jesus is all. Guy, I know uh, part of our former fellowship planted a church in Jacksonville, Florida, um, and uh, thriving uh, down there. And I saw this week he posted this. A t-shirt, this is their baptism tee, and on the back of it, I just love the message in light of what we heard. I need Jesus. What I don't need is to get better, to do well, to be happier, to be loved, to get richer. I don't need those things. What I need more than anything else, what I need is Jesus. We need to bring it down to the simplicity of just coming to Him and having everything else set aside. And so Jesus says, uh, to him, rise to Saul, verse 6, rise and enter the city. You're going to be told uh, what you're to do. Again, there's more crushing going on here because when you look at Saul, who later becomes the apostle Paul, of course, and, and, and you look at him and you just understand, if you know type A driven, entrepreneurial, go, go get it type person, if you know that kind of person, that's Paul. That's the kind of person he is. And, and you also know that that kind of person doesn't wait very well. The driven, entrepreneurial, type A person, they're not good at waiting. They're not good at slowing down for a second. And that's Saul. And God says to him, I want you to go to Damascus and wait. Now, God's just tearing down the last vestiges of whatever's left of his self-sufficiency. He's bringing him further to the end of himself and doing it all in an instant. Verse 7 says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. We know, in fact, that the sound they heard was a sound but not the voice itself. We know that from Paul's testimony in chapter 22. But the fact that they're there so critical is that there's witnesses to this encounter that Saul has. They see what happens to him. 
Now, what's absent from this part of the narrative at this point, we know where it's going. If you know the rest of Acts, if you know the rest of the New Testament, you know where this goes. But what's absent from this part is anything related to what Saul's purpose and mission is going to be. This is all about one thing that Saul himself would talk about repeatedly in his letters, that he had seen Jesus. At the end of the day, this was the most important thing that ever happened to him. He had seen Jesus. It was all about the personal encounter that he had, and everything else was going to flow from that. In 1 Corinthians 9.1, he said, rhetorically, he asked, well, have I not seen the Lord? And everyone knew that he had. He says a similar thing towards the end of 1 Corinthians. He says uh, something very similar in Galatians chapter 1.16. He saw Jesus. And that changed everything. And so the question pressing on us is this, have you had your own personal encounter with Jesus? Not that you would see him like Saul did. Let's admit that this is a very unique conversion experience. That's not what we're looking for, but yes, we are looking that you would have had a personal encounter with him, that you had that moment that divides the before Christ and the after Christ part of your story. That moment when you gave your life to Him, and He saved you. And if you have it, this is what it results in. See this next in your notes. An altered life trajectory because of Christ. The direction of my life is now completely different than what I thought it was going to be. Because a genuine Christian does not simply continue to live life as if nothing has changed. I said it a moment ago, everything has changed. If you met Jesus, everything has changed. The trajectory of your life before Christ was self. It was sin. And it was, in fact whether you realize this or not, eternal damnation, eternal separation from God. When we pass from this life and don't have Christ, one of the benefits you lose as an unbeliever is the common grace of God that blesses everyone. Every single human being on the planet is blessed today by the common grace of God. And in that moment that you die without Christ, you lose the common grace. And far more. That's what our life is like before Christ. But then our trajectory after Christ, it's God, it's salvation, it's eternal life, it's an abundant life here before we get there. So verse 8, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, the Bible says he saw nothing. Saul, you can imagine, as he was making his way to Damascus, was maybe even a little bit giddy about the fact that he was carrying these letters, that he was going to go into that city and he was going to accomplish something. Again, if he truly is this, this type A, driven, entrepreneurial type guy, then he's driven by success, and what would really make his day is finding some Christians to drag back to Jerusalem. That's what he's imagining as chief persecutor of the church. I can't wait to get to Damascus and do my job. 
But now, he's being led by the hand into Damascus, blind and helpless. And that was his condition, verse 9 tells us, for three days, and likely due to the stress of the situation, and I can certainly identify with this, he neither ate nor drank. There have been times in my life when I've been so stressed out by circumstance, you just can't eat. Anybody else? You just can't eat, and you just don't even take care of yourself very much. And that's the situation that Saul finds himself in. And we have to see Saul's blindness here as a symbol of how shattered his life is. All of his pride and self-sufficiency, all of his self-will are gone. And again, this is the posture of anyone who would come to Jesus. And it sets up this new life trajectory, his life after Christ saves him. And in fact, God says to Ananias later in the passage in verse 16, look at it. It says, I will show him, I'm going to show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Saul has spent his The last several years now persecuting the church and bringing suffering on others, God's going to bring that suffering back on him. Now, this altered life trajectory that we're talking about affects everything for a Christian. There's no no ability in the Christian life to compartmentalize different sections of our life Certainly, we cannot compartmentalize our faith. We can't simply call ourselves a Christian, come here on Sunday, check the box, and then go to our homes, go to our workplaces, go into our neighborhoods, and think that Jesus doesn't matter in those places. There's no space for that in the Christian life. And if that's your program... If you're just coming here to check a box and Jesus hasn't saturated and changed the rest of your life, then you have no basis for saying that you're saved. And I know that seems harsh. But in fact, if that's what you're doing, you're you're a little religious. But that's it. We know that there are, in fact, The way God has set up the creation, there are three institutions that God has created for humanity. I'm going to put these up on the screen. God created these three institutions, first of all, family, secondly, government and society, thirdly, the people of God, which for a good portion of history was Israel and for the last 2,000 years has been the church. And I put this in front of you because I want you to to think about becoming a a follower of Jesus Christ, and then your life trajectory with respect to all three institutions that God has put into the world today. The question really is this, in what way am I, to use the phrasing of this message, in what way am I a chosen instrument of God in each one of these spheres? In, In my family, let's start with that one. In my family... For myself, I have to be a godly husband. I have to be a godly father. I have to be a godly grandfather. That's what God has charged me with. And you're going to ask the same questions. Or uh, how can I be a godly wife? How can I, I be a godly mother, a godly son, a godly daughter? I have to look at the scriptures and say, what 
What does the Lord say about all of these family relationships? And I have to bring Jesus to those because the trajectory of my life dictates it. If I think about society, I'm, a, am I, I'm asking myself, am I a contributing citizen of the country, the province, the city in which I live? You know, one of the most radical examples of this, the, the, the Jews were carried away into exile into Babylon. And when they got there, the prophet Jeremiah said to them in Jeremiah 29, 7, he said this, that you, you, I want you to seek the peace of the cities in which you're in. I want you to pray for those cities. I want you to contribute to the well-being of those cities. You're going to be in exile for a while, and you need to be a contributing citizen to these Babylonian cities in which you will be living. The principle is true for all of us, that as Christians, we should be the best citizens that Canada, Ontario, and Barrie has. We should be the best citizens of Simcoe County exemplary in how we conduct ourselves. And then beyond that, as part of society, we also have jobs or we run businesses. And the scriptures say uh, many things about what it means to be a good employee or a good employer. We have to bring the principles of scripture to all of these things. That's the trajectory, the life trajectory of a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And then in terms of the church, in the church I see my forever family And I'm part of a compelling mission. I have purpose in life. It's in the context of the church that I learn what it means to love God because I see others doing it better than me. It's in the context of the church that I love people and I learn to love people more. God wants us to do that together and he's called us together as part of his body. I want to exemplify the Lord Jesus Christ in all of these spheres of my life. But none of that makes sense. None of that makes sense as a life direction unless I first have Christ. That's what it means to be a chosen instrument. That word instrument, I looked into it a little more carefully. And in fact, the word instrument could also be translated vessel. And I looked at one of the lexicons and this is where the really deep, really deep studying goes because a vessel is a, a bowl, container, or jug. That's it. It's not really that deep. But that's what an instrument is. It's a vessel, a bowl, a container, a jug. You have different vessels, different containers for different purposes. It's a vessel that exercises, in fact, the lexicon goes on to say, a vessel that exercises a particular function. Paul David Tripp said this, and this is the challenge then for us. An instrument is a tool. Again, we can think about containers, different containers. We can think about different musical instruments, or we can think about different tools that we would use. An instrument is a tool that is actively used to change something. And God has called all of his people to be instruments of change in his redemptive hands. How many of his people has he called to this? That was a question. How many of his people has he called to this? All of them. All of them. All of us called to be instruments of change in his redemptive hands. But is that you? Is that you in your home? 
Is that you in society? And is that you in the church? Because if you're in Christ, that must be your life trajectory. And that leads us to this next. An ongoing relationship with Christ. Because we we know that the gospel is not simply about a one-time decision that gets us saved and then we're all set for heaven. The gospel is, is, is about our ongoing transformation and life in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel applied to my life daily until the moment I pass into the presence of God. I never stop applying the gospel. Now, verse 10, we see such a person who has an ongoing relationship with God and who's applying the gospel to his own life. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And what I love about Ananias' inclusion in this story and the role that he plays is that he's, he's like you and me. He's ordinary Joe church member. He's just a guy in the church, the church in Damascus. Verse 11, the Lord said to him in a vision, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, and Judas is likely another believer in the church, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. You know, I love history and geography. You guys know that already. So I, I, I start thinking about stuff like this. And so I, I said, I wonder, because Damascus is still around. And, and I'm like, I wonder if Straight Street is still there. You ever wonder stuff like that? So what do you do? You go to Google Maps. I want to see if Straight Street is still there. And so Google Maps, this is Google Maps. I, I did this on Friday, took a screenshot, and you can see it marked out there. It's called Medhat Basha now. And um, you wonder why they call it Straight Street? I'll give, I'll give you a moment to the rest of you to figure it out. But I mean, it's pretty obvious. It cuts straight through the middle of old Damascus. It was quite a wide street, in fact, well-known, kind of like a main thoroughfare through old Damascus. I look at stuff like this, and I go, that's cool, that I could just Google map straight street, and there it is. And then I start thinking. Ananias walked down this street. He went to Judas's house. And when he got in there, Saul was sitting there blind. Is that cool? God is working in history in this way, and we can see him at work in the lives of ordinary people. God lets Ananias know ahead of time before he goes that Saul too is seen in a vision, a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. God wants us to see in his word that God's actually the one orchestrating all of this. God's in control of this every step of the way. And then this expected objection comes in verse 13, where Ananias says to God, Lord, I've, I've heard from many about this guy. I know about this guy. I know how much evil he has done to other believers in Jerusalem. God, I know, verse 14, I know that he has authority from the chief priests to bind people and carry them back to Jerusalem. And what Ananias is thinking at this moment is, 
He's come for me. The very real possibility is, God, that you're leading me to this house on Straight Street, and you want me to go in there and present myself to the guy who might very likely bind me and carry me to Jerusalem, to my death. So his reaction is understandable. His his objection is rational. Saul was notorious. Everyone knew he had murdered Stephen. Everyone knew he had murdered others. That he had locked believers up, that he had shut down churches, that he had seen to the execution of Christians. And again, more detail in all of that is given in Paul's testimony in chapter 26. And so his concern, Ananias' concern, is legit. In verse 15, but the Lord so graciously said to him, go, for he is a, and here's the key line, he is a chosen instrument of mine. Now, building off what we've said in the last few points here, knowing that our relationship with God is ongoing and dynamic, knowing that the Holy Spirit indwells us and manifests himself through us, knowing knowing that the church is the body of Christ, we know, in fact, that this man Saul would later, as an apostle, write a letter to the Corinthians where he would say, to each is given, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, this manifestation of the Spirit is the Spirit of God, sometimes called the gift of the Spirit, but the Spirit of God showing up in the abilities and talents that we have, in the exercising of our ministries. The manifestation of the Spirit shows up in our service to one another. And every Christian, again, it's every Christian to each is given. Every Christian has a role to play. And Ananias coming in at this point of the story is our key to understanding that. We're all chosen. We're all chosen instruments, however prominent or however behind the scenes. In fact, to come back again to our illustration of the band, it was wonderful to have the drums, to have the acoustic guitar and the bass guitar and the keys. It was wonderful to have the instruments of of those beautiful voices that led us in worship. But apart from those who stood on the stage in this more prominent role of ministry, right up there behind that wall on the second floor in a mezzanine built over our storage area, there are a group of people who are doing sound and light and video and projection, who are making sure that the right things go on the screen at the right time, who are making sure that you can hear me, that the folks in the live stream can see everything and participate in the service. A group of people working in obscurity, more more Ananias, whereas those on the stage have more of the prominent role that we can see. In fact, one commentator said this about Ananias, that he would be an otherwise unknown Jewish Christian of Damascus. That's all he would be if it wasn't for this one thing that he was asked to do. It's a small one, just a small task done in obscurity but so significant in terms of global impact, so significant in terms of historical impact. You can't underestimate the impact of the Apostle Paul on all of history since. For his part, Saul's role will be, verse 15 continues here, to carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles, the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
He's going to be given this, this incredible apostolic office. But it all started with an ordinary guy named Ananias walking down Straight Street to Judas's place to heal him of his blindness. It all started right there. And I was reminded a couple of weeks ago about uh, this story. I'm going to put a, a slide up right now that uh, shows you the, the photographs of seven men. The story starts in the mid-1800s with a, an obscure figure, a man who you wouldn't otherwise know. He's an Ananias. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in the mid-1800s in the city of Detroit. So he's like a Harvest Kids worker, just working in obscurity with a bunch of kids in a room just in the north end of the building. But one of the students that he was teaching was a young man named D.L. Moody. And he had the opportunity when D.L. was actually 17 years old, he had the opportunity to lead him to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, D.L. Moody, if you know church history, D.L. Moody went on to become the most prominent evangelist of the 19th century. Most estimates show that he would have preached to 100 million people uh, long before there was any technology for him to do so. Founded at the Moody Church in Chicago, Moody Bible Institute. Through Moody Bible Institute, thousands and thousands of graduates who have gone around the world as missionaries and pastors. All as a result of D.L. Moody coming to Christ, but because a Sunday school teacher in Detroit told him the gospel. D.L. Moody preached at one point in the UK, and a man named F.B. Meyer came to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're in pastoral circles, you would know the name F.B. Meyer, but otherwise, not so much. Meyer was a pastor and theologian, and he had the opportunity to lead another man who was somewhat obscure, a J. Wilbur Chapman, to Jesus. No one really knows about Chapman, except for the fact that he preached and had great influence over another great evangelist, Billy Sunday, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And Billy Sunday became one of the most prominent American evangelists of the early part of the 20th century, and also has a very cool last name. I mean, if any... If, if there was ever a guy who was designed to be a pastor or preacher, it would be a guy named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday preached, and another obscure figure, a man named Mordecai Ham, came to faith in Jesus, and he became just a humble country preacher. But there was a young boy who went to his church whose name was Billy Graham. And it would be impossible to estimate exactly the influence that Billy Graham has had on the world in the 20th century and beyond. How many people, hundreds of thousands of people have been led to faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of Billy Graham? But it all started with an unknown Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, in Detroit, Michigan. And here's what Paul David Tripp said, again, in that great book, uh, Instruments in the, um, in the Master's Hands, embedded in the larger story of redemption is a principle we must not miss. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things in the lives of others. We're the ordinary people, you and me. God wants to use every one of us. We need to believe that. And one, one final point, when I'm a chosen instrument of God, I will have a sense of belonging in Christ's church. So verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, 
And this is like, this is a bit emotional just even to think about this happening, but he goes over to Saul and he calls him brother. Brother Saul. I mean, there's going to be a really bumpy road ahead that we're going to look at where the church doesn't want to trust the fact that Saul's actually become a Christian because they think it's just some kind of plot to infiltrate the leadership of the church. But Ananias knows and addresses him as brother. And he welcomed him into the family of God. And Saul was healed of his blindness, verse 18. He was baptized as Christ commands. And verse 19, taking food, he was strengthened. And for us, I read all of this and I see that it's in the context of fellowship between believers and there's simply no mission. There's no being a chosen instrument apart from what's happening in the church of Jesus Christ. Every bit of evidence in the New Testament points us to God working in and through not only His chosen individual instruments, me and you, but collectively through His chosen instruments, the church, His own body. Which brings me back to the main point. Are you a chosen instrument of God? You should be. You can be. All you need to do is surrender your life to Him. Leave nothing unsurrendered. And then watch as He works in you and through you for His own glory. Let me pray for us. Father, again, um, so very grateful. God, that you have spoken to us in your word. And uh, Father, uh, through your frail servant, I've sought to, Father, bring us to a place where we have a greater understanding of what you would have for each one of us. So God, I would pray that, that as we reflect on these truths, as we, as we mull over the message that we've heard, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in a powerful way in the lives of every Christian to know we all have a part to play. Whether it's behind the scenes or more prominent, we all have a part to play in this great mission that you've called us to. But God, I would also pray for those who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working, pursuing, convincing Father, bringing them to an understanding of what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ, to have their sins forgiven and to have the hope of glory. Father, that they too would have that before Christ and after Christ story because they've had that moment. I pray that moment would be today, this week, and your Holy Spirit would pursue them, Father, until they surrender. God, I pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ.